The following interview was recorded for CFRO The Pulse, Vancouver Co-op Radio's daily news show. The Pulse airs Monday to Friday at 7 a.m. on 100.5 FM and streaming live at coopradio.org. On today's show, it's the third day since the BC NDP won a historic and decisive majority victory in the election night. But what does that mean for residents of our city who experience homelessness, struggle with affordable housing, poverty, income inequality, and drug laws? We asked Stuart Prest of Simon Fraser University political scientist what the victory means, what remains to be counted in mail and advance ballots, and what he might expect from a majority NDP government. Here's Stuart Prest. Stuart, thanks a lot for joining us here on The Pulse on CFRO. Oh, it's my great pleasure. Yeah, great to great to have you on, and uh, I think a lot of people are asking questions about what Saturday's election means for British Columbia and for their lives, and and for for how we get through the the next uh, you know phase of coronavirus. Yeah, it, it clearly is a, an election that uh, uh, I mean, it was dominated by the coronavirus. It was lurking in the background the entire election. It shaped the way the parties were able to campaign. It shaped their messages, the things they talked about, the things voters were listening for, and uh, and, and it seems uh, pretty clear what voters ended up saying was that they were broadly satisfied with government uh, and the approach that the NDP had been taking up until this point. But uh, they were also a little bit miffed at the idea of having this election here. And we're seeing that reflected in what seems like it could be a pretty low turnout. I think a lot of people just uh, sat this one out. But uh, but yeah, it, the, the issues that we usually think about coming to the forefront of BC elections were there, housing, homelessness, and so on. But, but they were somewhat muted because we had this ongoing crisis at the forefront of everyone's mind. So can we talk about turnout? Um, com- I know that we had reported previously that the, the amount of advanced voting and mail-in ballots were kind of record high. What kind of numbers are we looking at for those amounts and for the total turnout when you add them all together? Well, we know that there were more than 700,000 mail-out ballots sent out and just a, a tick under 500,000 returned, so 400,000 and change returned. We also know that there was more than, I believe, more than 600,000 advance votes done at advanced polling stations. So combined total, we were well over a million advance votes. So it seemed like turnout was really... Uh, uh, the interest was high coming into the election, but what it actually what we we were seeing on the actual election day was that turnout was quite low during the actual Saturday balloting, and and so the overall numbers we're still going to have to wait and see what the final tally is. But sort of back of the envelope calculations by folks like Ian Bushfield of of Politicos and others suggest that we're looking at a pretty low turnout of just over fifty percent of registered voters, maybe in the area of fifty one percent or so. So about two. And- and a half, two million people-ish? Not even that. I don't even know if we cleared 200,000. Again, this is all back of the envelope stuff, so we can't fully know until Elections Canada publishes the, the final tallies. But, but compared to last time, it was like three and a half million. It was quite high. Uh, yeah, so we're, we're well behind uh, 2017's totals. What could be, that be about? Because it wasn't like there was no issues at stake. There's huge divisions in society over how Government should approach coronavirus, uh, shutdowns, economic recovery, not to mention all the controversy around homelessness and tent cities and opioid crisis. Yeah, for sure. And I am a little inconsistent in my interpretation of this election, and we'll probably get into it. But in terms of turnout, I do think we can put a lot of that down to the fact it is an election during a a pandemic where people were... uh, 
I mean, you leave the house and it's a decision with moral weight attached to it. Are you being safe? Are you protecting everyone in your bubble? And and so to take on additional civic responsibilities in the context of, of that kind of situation, I think people were uh, a little reticent to really get involved. Everyone has their hands full just getting through daily life. Everything is more complex right now. And I think for those who are not feeling strongly, strongly about issues, uh, there, there may have been a sense just to sit this one out. And added to that, there's the fact that... Uh, the Liberals really did not get uh, much momentum at all during the campaign. The results seemed like a, a foregone conclusion, and uh, the NDP was uh, pretty good at mobilizing their support. I think uh, a certain number of people just thought, well, maybe this is one I can just uh, I can just not pay attention to. I'm generally happy with the direction that the province is going in this, in this coronavirus, and I don't see any kind of real change even if I vote, so I, I'm just not going to, to bother this time around. Yeah, so jumping on the issues here, one of the big ones for a lot of our listeners in the downtown east side and east Vancouver more generally is housing, uh, particularly uh, the fate of renters uh, during the pandemic amidst this housing crisis. So, uh, Stuart, what do you kind of make of the NDP's big majority win? Is this something that will help housing or will this sort of just lead to kind of continuing the status quo on that? Well, I think, I mean, I would guess it depends where we're counting the status quo from. But uh, if we're going from 2017, I would expect that we will see uh, a pretty uh, much the same kinds of policies that we saw uh, the last three years or so. It's uh, uh, going to be, there's going to be changes at the margins. So the, the NDP clearly has been willing to uh, experiment with different kinds of policy as they go along, bringing in a, a speculation tax, bringing in a foreign buyer's tax. So uh, I expect they will try to fortify those uh, those changes to try to bring down the price of housing. They will uh, try to provide some support for renters. And it seems like that is, uh, uh, is something that we can expect from the government. But this is all fairly marginal stuff. It's a, um, the, the NDP committed to, I believe, a rebate of about $400 for renters. And I mean, that's nice, but that's not going to transform the market for a lot of people. So I expect to see that kind of incremental change. But I'm not sure that any party was promising some sort of uh, the, the, the what the level of uh, intervention in the market necessary that would really transform the uh, the calculus for people who are uh, on the margins of housing in especially with a lot of people really worried about getting evicted if their incomes continue to be stagnated during the pandemic or if they've been laid off uh, and I think that's just such a, a worry for so many groups and people that we've talked to is that a lot of people said why was if we're willing to overturn many institutions and traditions in our society with by this like even the act of continuing having to pay rent or mortgage really put people in an extremely stressed position oh certainly and i think we we've heard the different parties they were all aware of this problem but uh somewhat limited in, in terms of what promises they could make or would make in terms of relief and and partly this is a a jurisdictional issue housing is a is a provincial responsibility constitutionally and yet provinces including bc their resources are somewhat limited they just don't tax at a level uh, to provide things like sustained uh, social housing developments and and also they don't uh, necessarily have the resources to provide the level of relief necessary to uh, sustain a population through a crisis like this so 
We've seen BC, we've seen provinces across the country turn to the federal government to support them in their relief. And so most famously that it was in the CERB, but now that is winding down and we see the federal government committing to various kinds of relief. But but ultimately, ultimately, no matter who won this election, they were going to have to work with the federal government to try to help sustain uh whether it's renters, whether it's uh, low-income earners, wh- whoever it was who was facing uh, a challenge that was augmented by the, the coronavirus, it was going to be a multi-level uh, of government effort. And uh, that's an unsatisfying thing to hear during an election. And it is, uh, it's, it's an uncomfortable position to be in if you are in a position of need. Hmm. Uh, on homelessness, the other, the other flip side that's so important uh, and has really came up in the election around issues around public safety and the tent city and kind of accusations the NDP had failed on that issue. Did that resonate, do you think, with voters? And is that something that you think the government might tackle in a way that could could resolve it? And the NDP are, are still committed to, to provide some support for social housing. So they're trying to find some some measure of long-term relief. But uh, I think, if anything, during this last election, what we heard was a uh, a sharper challenge from the BC Liberals, where they had this strange sort of mixed messaging on uh, homelessness and housing issues, and and they wrapped up crime and addiction and uh, uh, into the same sort of nexus of issues. Trying to you you'd see them say things like uh, um, housing is a uh, homelessness is a real issue, and we need to tackle crime. Crime is on the rise in the province, which I mean it's not actually, but uh, they uh, were trying to meet. The, the needs of different portions of their their uh, coalition their their core voters and uh, and and so that was a, a suggestion that they might take the the province away from even the efforts that it is undertaking in terms of uh, focusing on issues of homelessness and uh, and related issues I guess of, of addiction and, and dealing with them as as social problems and introducing this this more crime and punishment law and order type narrative to and, and a set of policies uh, to the response. And, and that was not successful. So I think if we were to look at how the, the debate unfolded during the election, I would, I would look at that as a, um, a, 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 a endorsement of the idea from British Columbians that uh, perhaps we don't have uh, sufficient solutions to, to meet the level of need that's out there, but at least we're committed to dealing with it as that kind of challenge and not turn towards a more uh, right of center law and order approach to to keeping streets clean and so on, which was some of the rhetoric we heard coming out of the Liberal Party. We definitely did. And it was very interesting to see people like Sam Sullivan, who as mayor of Vancouver, championed harm reduction and helped you know oversee the founding of Insight, the first safe injection site in North America, turning and opposing this, a, a similar site in Yaletown, despite the fact that so many problems there were related to tensions between people in the drug user community and residents uh, of the homeowners in the area. And yet a safe injection site could have actually helped resolve that issue. He he, he and others were very much capitalizing on this sort of uh, uh, what seemed like a bit of a class division or a, a social issues division on that. Yeah, absolutely. He was taking uh, the, the sort of the comfortable homeowner's approach to uh, what is going on on Vancouver streets and opposing. I mean, it was it was classic NIMBYism, saying we don't want to have any kind of social intervention in our neighborhood if we are concerned about its central, its localization where where we live. And yet, 
it pushes it directly against the kind, just as you mentioned, against the kinds of harm uh, reduction that he and, and other mayors have, to their combined credit, have championed in in Vancouver. It, it obviously has not been sufficient, uh, given the, the the level of needs still out there. But but Vancouver has been at the forefront of fighting for things like safe injection sites and, and other forms of relief in in Canada. And uh, and it was disappointing, I think, uh, I think for many to see. Uh, Sam Sullivan turn his back on that kind of legacy, that kind of uh, set of initiatives, and and it it didn't work. He was defeated fairly uh, resoundingly last night. We obviously have to wait for the mail-in ballots to be counted, but it does not look good for for him. And so I I it, it was a strange sort of turn because it just did not it, it didn't work. Yeah, he 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 flipped the NDP managed to get that writing. Yeah, yeah, the NDP have long coveted uh, Vancouver Falls Creek, and uh, it looks like, if anything, uh, Sullivan performed more poorly than we would have expected compared to the way in which liberals were doing in other neighboring ridings and elsewhere in the province. That it was just a, a resoundingly unsuccessful message. It was just out of step where with where the city is, and so that I mean, it doesn't mean Vancouver clearly is not on top of the. Uh, the the fentanyl crisis, other issues in uh, the downtown east side, but at least there is an endorsement of the idea that these are these are issues we want to deal with as a community, and we're not interested in trying to uh, try trying to hide them away and, and keep them out of our our neighborhoods. And so that kind of approach was uh, was was defeated at the ballot box. I think that's fair to say. Now on the issue of harm reduction and drug policy, I think that some of the disappointment was. Uh, shared between the different parties. It wasn't just uh, the BC Liberals who kind of made it a bit of a red meat controversial issue, but I know that John Horgan got hammered earlier in the campaign for uh, suggesting that the fentanyl crisis was completely different than the opioid cri- than the COVID because it was a choice at first, which got, he had to apologize for, and uh, kind of was, uh, got, came under a bit of attack for his, uh, his government's legislation that would have uh, involuntarily incarcerated youth who overdosed. Uh, and I know that a lot of advocates were pretty disappointed in the government and uh, the campaign for for doing that. Uh, it doesn't seem like that hurt them, however. No, I don't. I mean, it, it didn't really break through in a major way into the, the larger debate. And the, I think what, if anything, it just indicates that these issues suffer from a lack of uh, attention, if anything. They are just not uh, given the... Uh, the focus that uh, they would require at, at the level of cabinet to to see a, a sustained intervention from from the province, and uh, it's uh, uh, I mean it's to to the the premier's pr- uh, credit, I guess, that he was willing to apologize and admit that uh, that that approach was uh, was was flawed and, and it betrayed a lack of understanding about what he what he was talking about, but. But that's not the same thing as saying as uh, he's going to uh, take it on board and and, uh, and make it a priority for the government. And to some extent, I think we're seeing this across the board. It's not just with issues of housing and and uh, and uh, homelessness and, and and addictions and so on. But all the issues that have tended to be at the forefront of uh, British Columbia elections in the last couple of cycles were really given put in the back seat by uh, or taking a back seat to uh, to the coronavirus and all that. Uh, British Columbians were looking for was a, a safe pair of hands to continue to uh, manage the recovery if we are indeed in a, a recovery and to continue to ensure the the safe delivery of, of services in this uh, in this crisis which just 
dominates headlights. It's a, the first thing that anyone thinks of right now when we think of what can government, what do we need government to do? And uh, and I think it's it's unfortunate given the other uh, multiple uh, demands that we need to be making on government right now, whether it's uh, uh, on on the issues of Vancouver streets or whether we're talking about uh, climate action. These are these are issues that just are not receiving the same attention as they normally would. And it's hard to read the tea leaves of what exactly voters thought on those issues, because as you said, it was all about who's the guiding hand. And that comes down to tone and, and behavior and some stuff outside the government's control, like Dr. Bonnie Henry or British Columbia culture or, you know, the, the, the luck we've had with coronavirus here. Yeah, absolutely. What you can say is that uh, the the NDP have, uh, to their credit, been uh, very willing to be guided by their advisors, uh, as far as we can tell. Uh, in their response, there there is not a perfect response by any means. There are serious questions about uh, school readiness coming into the year and and a number of other issues. But that uh, and just the overall seriousness with which the government has approached the issue. It, it is being treated as a priority. And we have seen, not just in BC, but we have seen in many different jurisdictions that governments that take it seriously, that really effectively are giving a good faith effort to to uh, implement evidence-based policy in the, in the face of this uh, once-in-a-century pandemic, uh, are being uh, rewarded when it comes time for a vote during during the pandemic. So so you're right, we don't know what voters think about all these other issues because we barely got around to talking about it. Do you think that there will be any kind of consequences long-term or culturally or, or pol- politically about the government breaking its uh, agreement with the Green Party? Uh, could future lieutenant governors be reluctant to agree to that kind of arrangement? Uh, and the same for the fixed election dates. They broke that promise as well. That was actually a law. Well, it's unlikely to affect any kind of uh, lieutenant governor uh, decision making and they weren't the, the essentially if a prime minister or a premier or a first minister uh, asks for an election unless they are doing so in order to uh, defy the will of the people so if they were to ask for an election as Christy Clark did immediately after an election you might see a lieutenant governor say no but by and large if a, if a lieutenant if a premier asks for an election, they, they are going to be granted that. And I don't think that's going to change. And if there is a demonstration of confidence in uh, the legislature, that uh, the, the, the lieutenant governor will take that under advisement. And after all, we had three solid years of government just about uh, uh, between the, the Greens and the NDP. So by the uh, reckoning of Canadian history. This uh, that three-year run was a, a resounding success. The, the average length of a minority government is uh, more on the order of eighteen months. And so, uh, if anything, we can take this as an indicator of just how well uh, parties can cooperate when the situation calls for it. And uh, and uh, but, and yet at the same time, clearly politics is there. The the NDP saw an opportunity. They saw themselves riding high in the polls, and uh, and they they gambled and uh, they won their gamble. And so we just we're back in the realm of politics again. And uh, that's I mean that that's just a, a part of democracy. And we it might leave a, a poor taste in everyone's mouth, but it didn't def- it didn't undermine any conventions, um, including about the the, the fixed elections. Uh, legislation. The legislation is written pretty clearly that it's a uh, uh, fixed election if necessary, or if you get to four years, but not necessarily fixed election. That there is still the the space created for 
the convention that the, the first minister, the premier, can request an election, and the, the lieutenant governor will grant that, except unless there are these extenuating circumstances. Hmm. So fascinating kind of process stuff. We'll, we'll keep following. Uh, I guess my last question is, uh, why do we have to wait uh, up to three weeks to find out the actual results of this thing? Is Why do we even have that rule at Elections BC? Well, I mean, part of it is logistics. They want to have time in order to ensure they can cross-check signatures and names to 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 verify that there was no uh, uh, double voting by people who voted by mail and then showed up at the polling station on election day. So, I mean, so there is a certain amount of logistical work to do, but it's also written into the the legislation itself that there's this 13-day waiting period, and they can't even open the envelopes until then. Right, right, and and so they they can do some of the verification work ahead of time, I believe. But but that legislation doesn't need to be written that way, and I think this is the kind of thing that uh, we will want to look at. I don't think mail-in balloting is going to go away. I expect that some uh, segment of the population will say this was good for me. I prefer not having to go out to a polling station. I like voting at a time of my convenience, and so the province will want to be ready for that next time around. And I would not be surprised if that legislation is examined and uh, and we will get the results effectively as soon as they are available, not giving some sort of arbitrary waiting period. But it's unlikely to change the results as far as you can see? No, I mean, this is, uh, we're a little bit in the realm of speculation, but a lot of the results are, are pretty definitive. It would be uh, just an extremely unlikely event for more than a handful of, of seats to be even in play at this point. And, and I, I think there might be nine that we can't really declare. And even among those nine, the, the results seem mostly static. And if anything, polling suggested that it, uh, it, it was uh, the NDP voter who was more likely to engage in mail-in balloting. So if anything, uh, my expectation would be that the NDP margin grows a little bit. So we might look at a couple of races like Vancouver Langara, where Mike Lee is currently hanging on. He he may not be able to hold on to that seat once we count it, the ma- mail-in ballots, but it's by no means going to change the substantive result. It is a an NDP majority and I just don't see any way that's going to change. Fascinating. Well, uh, that's all my questions for you, Stuart. Biggest uh, thing that you'll be looking for in the next uh, few months of this new government? Well, it'll be interesting to watch how the NDP sets the new tone. We heard just in the closing days of the uh, the race, uh, uh, Premier Horgan, he seemed to be feeling fairly comfortable about his chances and was reflecting on his willingness to be magnanimous in governing and to listen to the opposition for ideas. And we'll have to see if that's the case. But we may find ourselves in a return to the somewhat more collegial atmosphere we had during the early days of the pandemic when there was a lot of multi-partisan support for the actions that government was taking. So we may find ourselves back in that kind of space. Uh, it'll be interesting, some of the signature uh, commitments that the NDP made on, say, child care, that might be the single largest uh, long-term commitment that the the, uh, the NDP made. So I'm going to be watching that close. Getting to $10 a day for, for working families. That's right. And uh, to see if they are able to implement it, they have four years to do it. So that's, I think that's a fair measuring stick for this government in terms of are they still implementing a, a progressive agenda? They are. Uh, I've taken to uh, comparing them a little bit to the federal liberals, this current uh, incarnation of the provincial NDP. They are a progressive party, but they're a pretty cautious, fairly centrist version of that. And uh, and so they seem to be keen not to rock the boat. They want to make it easy for uh, 
somebody who might be willing to vote federal liberal and perhaps previously voted BC liberal, they want to make it easy for them to vote for the NDP instead. So I would expect them to continue to act in a way that would uh, support that that kind of voter. And so that means action on uh, childcare, maybe, uh, but not a lot of transformative change. It will be much more incremental. And so that's what I'm expecting. And it'll be interesting to see who's in cabinet. There's going to be some turnover there. And uh, and just how does this NDP government act now that they are they are quite stable. They are in charge and the opposition can can oppose, they can raise points, but uh, uh, this is the NDP show for the next four years. So we get to see what they're going to do with it. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for breaking it all down for us, Stuart. It's great to have you on here. Oh, it's my pleasure. Anytime. And that was Stuart Prest, a political scientist at Simon Fraser University. CFRO The Pulse is brought to you by the Local Journalism Initiative, a program funded by Heritage Canada and administered through the Community Radio Fund of Canada. Thank you.